Hey everyone, John Heilman here, and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from the Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. With the trial of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd now underway for its third week in Minneapolis, and with Joe Biden last week announcing a number of measures to deal with gun violence and urging Congress to take more dramatic action, we thought it was about time to try out something we have been wanting to do for a while here on the podcast, which is to undertake an episode dedicated to a single topic with a guest for whom that topic is an area of special expertise or lifelong passion or ideally both. And so... On this week's episode, we give you a deep dive into a matter of great national importance that also happens to be much on our minds and in the news right now. That would be criminal justice reform as it intersects with racial equity. And to address that matter, we have with us, if I do say so myself, the perfect guest, the junior United States Senator from the state of New Jersey, Cory Booker. The state of black America is interwoven, interconnected and and, uh, interdependent. There really is one America, and white America does not thrive uh, if Latino America doesn't thrive, or black America, because it's just really one destiny here. It is fair to say that no issue is more central to Cory Booker's career in politics and policy than criminal justice reform. It is also fair to say that no member of the U.S. Senate knows more about or cares more about criminal justice reform than Cory Booker. Born in Washington, D.C. and raised in New Jersey, a graduate of Stanford University and Yale Law School and a former Rhodes Scholar, Booker began his career in public service on the Newark City Council, then became the city's 38th mayor from 2006 to 2013 when he was elected to his current post. Booker's political and policy-making connection to criminal justice issues, from police brutality to sentencing and prison reform to the inequities of our country's drug laws, all of which have a pervasive racial overlay and massive consequences for the African-American community. All of it grew out of his experiences in Newark. As a city councilman, he famously staged a 10-day hunger strike to draw attention to drug dealing and drug-related violence. As mayor, he pursued an ambitious slate of reforms, sometimes successfully and sometimes not, as he ran up against the deep-rootedness of the ills afflicting Newark. In the Senate, Booker has put forward a remarkable array of legislation to reform various aspects of policing in the penal system. His most conspicuous success came in 2018 when, working a little bit controversially alongside the Trump administration, he saw his signature piece of reform legislation, the First Step Act, which mandated substantial changes to tough-on-crime prison and sentencing laws, including expanding job training and early release programs, as well as modifying sentencing laws, including mandatory minimum sentences, saw that enacted into law the law of the land. The next year, Booker was right back at it, introducing the Next Step Act, which would go a lot further, cutting mandatory minatory sentences in half for nonviolent drug offenders, eliminating the discrepancy between crack and powder cocaine sentences, reinstating voting rights to former felons nationwide, and banning the box, meaning it would prohibit federal employers from asking job applicants about criminal history. Booker is also the sponsor of the Marijuana Justice Act, a bill that would legalize weed and expunge the records of those who have been charged with a crime for using or possessing it, about which I have only this to say, hashtag endorse, motherfuckers. In the wake of George Floyd's public execution, Booker took to the floor of the U.S. Senate and gave one of the more moving speeches heard in the chamber about what we had all just witnessed and the urgent need for change. So naturally, I wanted to talk to Corey about his impressions of the trial and his fears if justice is not done. I also wanted to talk with him about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which just passed the House of Representatives and would, among other things, overhaul qualified immunity for police officers, ban chokeholds at the federal level, 
prohibit no-knock warrants in federal drug cases and outlaw racial profiling, but which is opposed in some quarters on the left, including by Black Lives Matter, for not going far enough. I wanted, of course, to talk with Booker about 420, but also about the experiences in his own life, not just as a practicing politician, but as a black man in America, that inform his tireless work to try to fix our utterly broken, terminally fucked criminal justice system. I have spent a fair amount of time with Cory Booker over the years, and in particular during his run for president in 2019 and 2020, but because of our singular focus here, this was a different kind of talk than we have ever had before. For one thing, I don't believe Cory has ever shed a tear in my presence before, and yet, as you will soon hear, he did that on the podcast, and I'm betting that you might too when you hear him as you settle in for the first single-issue episode we've ever made here on Hell and High Water. Once Mr. Floyd, and this is based on my viewing of the, the, the videos, um, once Mr. Floyd had stopped resisting, and certainly once he was um, uh, in distress and trying to verbalize that, um, that, that should have stopped. Um, there's, there's an initial reasonableness in trying to just get him under control over the, in the first few seconds. But, but uh, once there was no longer any resistance, and clearly when Mr. Floyd was no longer responsive and even motionless, to continue to apply that level of force to a person proned out, handcuffed behind their back, um, that that in no way, shape, or form is anything that um, uh, is by policy, is not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. So that's Sheriff Madaria Arradondo testifying in the Chauvin murder trial in Minneapolis, and we are here on Hell and High Water with Cory Booker, Senator Booker, my friend. It's good to see you. It's really good to see you as well. Thanks for having me on. I told you before, Corey, that we're going to talk about one issue and one issue only. First ever single issue episode of Hell and High Water. You're a man who contains multitudes, but I think of this issue as, in a lot of ways, your issue. You've been more focused on criminal justice and its intersection with racial equity than any other national public official that I know. So I wanted to, to spend some time talking to you about it right now, because partly because of the Chauvin trial so much in the news, but also because it's just such an important issue. And I, and I guess I wanted to start with just, I know you're a busy guy. I know you're not sitting at home watching the Chauvin trial every minute of it as it unfolds, but my guess is you're seeing some of the news and you may have seen that testimony. What's been your reaction so far to what we've seen in the trial? You know, I haven't been following it very closely, not just because I'm busy, but I think a little bit of emotional distance to relive all of that. And I think some of the clips I've seen of witnesses and the emotional difficulty of, I think, so many Americans experienced of a murder, witnessing someone's life being snuffed out. It's almost like re-traumatizing yourself. The, the second thing I'll say is that it has been marked to me more than once by friends of mine who know these kind of trials, how many police officers have been coming forward and just saying very plainly that this was wrong and uh, this is counter to, as you heard in that quote, to our training and our values. And that's affirming to me uh, thus far. You don't have to answer this question at any length, but are you worried about, I mean, I am right now, I have to say the thing that has me most, I, every day I look up at this trial and I worry about a hung jury. I just do. I am definitely um, 
I read about the multiple outcomes of this trial, including from the whether he's convicted or not, all the way to sentencing. Yep. So many aspects of this that where things can go, uh, what I would say is wrong. Yes. Well, I'm thinking you and I probably are in the same place about that. And that's part of why I'm why I'm nervous about it, because I, you know, I mean, I covered OJ, you know, um, and they went the wrong way. So these things can get fucked up in a lot of ways. Juries are funny things. Yeah. So one of the things that's happened, Corey, I mean, you you like many people last summer, you, you spoke movingly on the floor of the Senate in the wake of George Floyd's. I don't even like to think of it next as a, as a murder. I think of it as more of an execution in some ways, public execution, a, a lynching. I know I'm not being novel in, in suggesting that, you know, you spoke and there was this moment racial reckoning was upon us and there was a lot of passion in the streets and elsewhere and the, on the floor of the United States Senate. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act has been passed by the House of Representatives. So I'd like you to talk about that's the that's like the first tangible federal thing that we've seen as a result directly. I know that's built on prior efforts, reform efforts and other things, people that were stirring in Congress even before George Floyd. But talk about that bill and what you think of it. I'm not even going to ask you to tell me why it's a good thing, but tell me what's what do you think is good in it? Is there anything where you feel like it falls short? And what do you think its prospects are for getting passed? So at the end of the day, accountability is critical. And where you don't have good systems of accountability, bad things happen. And critical to accountability is having standards that we all agree on, ways of affirming or measuring those standards, and having consequences when we fail to reach them. The the policing profession, which is such a critical profession, such a profession where, you know, I I ran a a city, I know uh, uh, what it means to run a police department. Very, very brave, courageous people who make the decision to do this. But given the fact that they have the power to kill, to abuse civil rights, we need fierce systems of accountability. And this legislation tries to help better affirm standards, give more transparency and measures, and then has a a real set of consequences if you fail to meet those standards, which is a critical part of accountability. And so that's just a general of the bill from dealing with the consequences issue of, you know, the criminal standard when police officers do terribly things wrong or the civil standard of something called qualified immunity and how that protects folks. It creates a lot more transparency. There's no way of collecting federally right now the uh, uses of force data that's out there. Um, as one FBI director recently said, I can't even measure how many times a police officer has shot another human being. How can you manage it if you can't measure it? And then it's, it sets standards by doing things like saying, Hey, we shouldn't do no knock warrants like the one that killed Breonna Taylor. We shouldn't do carotid chokeholds like the ones that killed Eric Gardner or obviously uh, the horrific knee in the neck as we see for George Floyd. But you asked me an interesting question. Like what's not in this? This bill is in no way going to solve all the problems and the issues. There's a lot more that needs to be done. I see this as one very solid building block in creating a nation where we are better securing ourselves, where we're more safe, and where we have broken this thought that safety equals more police in more areas. We start to broaden the aperture a bit to begin to understand what does it really mean to create a affirming, safe society with high well-being and low crime. And that's where I think we've gone terribly wrong over the course of the last 40 years in the wrong direction in many cases, 
and distorting what real safety and security is and where it comes from. And the example I'll give you just to end this point is a picture of me a new mayor, 2006, summer, violent crimes rising, gang problems in the city, talking to the head of the FBI for the state. This is in the city of Newark, just for anybody who doesn't realize Cory Booker was once the mayor of Newark, New Jersey. Yes, I, I get, got my BA from Stanford, but my PhD on the streets of Newark, an incredible city that has blessed me in ways I, I can't even uh, enumerate. But the FBI director, when I look at him, and I ask the question very purposely this way. I go, well, how do we solve these problems? He just outlined all the gang problems, all the violence. I go, how do we solve these problems? And he looks at me and with a lot of wisdom, he just says, we don't solve these problems. In other words, he was acknowledging that that law enforcement is not going to solve the problems that are stemming from deeper rooted issues in our country that often reflect the poverty of empathy and understanding, a failure to commit to creating a more beloved society where well-being for all of our children, all of our families is high and, and, and enabling people to thrive, that the vulnerable amongst us, whether it's the addicted, the mentally ill, uh, the traumatized, get help and not further harm. So I, I just think that we need to reimagine in our country what are the best ways to affirm of what it means to be safe and strong as a society because we're failing to do this. And then everything falls upon the, right. the doorstep of, of police. So the George Floyd Act, um, you know, you mentioned it ends qualified immunity, uh, which is a pretty big deal, bans the chokehold, but only on the federal level. Policing is not primarily a federal responsibility, prohibits no-knock warrants, uh, outlaws racial profiling. Those are all good things. And you're right. I was purposeful when I asked you uh, where you thought it, it fell, not fell short, but what else is left to do? Because I think, you know, one of the things knowing, you know, your history, right? You know, you did the First Step Act. That was your big piece of criminal justice reform that got done during the Trump administration. I want to ask you a little bit about some of the politics there. But before we get to that, you know, the first thing you did as soon as you got that thing passed, big, huge thing for you, right? To get that bill passed, to get that enacted, I mean, into law, you know, with a Republican administration, Donald Trump, racist president in the White House, got it done. And then you turned around and, and wrote the Next Step Act, right, which is on the shelf right now. And I don't mean written off for dead. I mean, it's on the docket. It's like what you want to do next. And I look at that bill, which talks about cutting mandatory minimum sentences in half for nonviolent drug offenders, eliminating the discrepancy between crack and powder cocaine sentences, uh, reinstating voting rights for felons nationwide. Those are bigger deals. I mean, bigger deals, right, would be a much bigger swing. And that's, again, not to criticize the George Floyd Act as an important first step. But I presume, given your name on that bill, and that is your next child, in some sense, legislatively on this topic, these are the things when you start to talk beyond the large scale things of reimagining what safety would be like and how resources should be deployed. Tangibly speaking, the stuff that's in the next step act is the stuff that Cory Booker thinks we got to get done here if we're going to fix this broken system. Yeah. I, look, we had incarceration rates in this country generally the same as the rest of the developed world in the 1960s. And we made policy decisions. It was interesting you said that the federal government can't dictate local policing issues or you can ban children. No, the federal government did dictate local policing and state policing by creating very rich financial incentives right. for states to do things that have really never been done in humanity, which is to incarcerate literally one out of every three incarcerated women on the planet Earth here in the United States, one out of every four incarcerated people, period. We were building a new prison or jail in America every 10 or so days between the time I was in law school in the late 90s 
from the time I became that mayor of the city of Newark. I mean, we have just seen a stunning and an astonishing investment of billions of dollars. There are now more people living in prisons or jails in the, in the South of America than in college campuses. We've just done this un, a, a stunning growth of this prison industrial complex, all at the expense of our economy, our shared values, and the lives of large, large-scale parts of our society. And so, I, I, of course, I want to go big and I want to invest in the evidence-based things that keep people safe and stop locking up. Every time I go to a jail or a prison, I will ask the warden, are there people in here that do not belong? And often these very tough you know, people will look at me and soften and say, there's so much of a waste of taxpayer dollar in this facility. And so I, I don't think people really kind of fully grasp in our country yet how self-inflicted it is to have a nation of drug laws that basically has said, we're going to elect Congress people, Senate presidents who have admitted to breaking drug laws. Yeah. Two of the last four presidents admitted to marijuana. And we are not going to touch the elites, but we are going to crack down on marijuana crimes. Literally, there's no difference between blacks and whites for using marijuana. But blacks are almost four times more likely. If you're telling me that you don't think we still give people criminal convictions for it, well, in 2019, there were more arrests for marijuana, marijuana possession, than all violent crimes combined. And what folks don't get is, as I've had to intervene many times here in Newark, once you have a criminal conviction or even an arrest, the economic walls of your life come crumbling down getting a, a loan from the bank, getting a many business license. I remember talking to a guy who 18 years ago, nonviolent drug offense, had gotten a, a job at New Jersey Transit, was thrilled and told me that when they did the background check, they found that from 18 years earlier, made him turn back his uniform and he lost job, pension, healthcare for his family and the like. We are in a world where there's 40,000, according to the American Bar Association, collateral consequences uh, for a nonviolent drug conviction. And so this is one of the things that makes me profoundly uncomfortable. Yeah. And when I say that, I, I guess I'm trying to say that those of us who are comfortable in a world where in our name, because remember, it's the people versus the state versus we are the people, we are the state. Things are being done that other nations call human rights violations. What we do in this country from putting children in solitary confinement to literally about 80% of the women we incarcerate are survivors of sexual trauma. The majority of the people we incarcerate are grappling with addiction, mental illness, poverty. Yeah. And so what does it say about us as a society that we are comfortable with this truly mass incarceration of vulnerable and hurt people who, when they come out, and most people come out, sometimes months, they are worst off. They are more damaged, more traumatized, more harmed, less able to stand on their own feet and provide for themselves or their families. It is a sick system that we need bold ideas to change. All right. We're going to take a very quick break here. 
listen to an ad. I want to come back because you started talking about marijuana, which is one of my most favorite uh, pastimes and one of my most favorite topics, um, because I think it's actually super important. And you have a marijuana reform piece of legislation. Also, I don't want to get in the weeds of legislation, but I do want to talk about pot and get back on the topic you just raised with our friend Cory Booker here on Hell and High Water. We'll be right back after this break. I, I have a lot of respect uh, for, for the vice president. He has uh, swore me into my office as a hero. This week, I hear him literally say that I don't think we should legalize marijuana. I, 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 I thought you might have been high when you said it. <laughs> and, and let me tell you, because, because marijuana, marijuana, marijuana in our country is already legal for privileged people. And it's one, the war on drugs has been a war on black and brown people. With more African-Americans under criminal supervision in America than all the slaves since 1850, do not roll up into communities and not talk directly to issues that are going to relate to the liberation of children. Because there are people in Congress right now that admit to smoking marijuana, while there are people, our kids are in jail right now for those drug crimes. So there's uh, Cory Booker uh, in a debate. <laughs> that, is, uh, that, is a cool, that is a little clip I'm, I'm hoping at some point stops being played. But uh, yes, yeah. indeed, I, I accused Joe Biden of being high. It was horrible. Yes, obviously rhetorical, but actually raising a serious point. And this is in a, a Democratic primary debate back in the fall of 2019. Uh, you were running for president. He was running for president. He did a little better than you right. in terms of the outcome. But you were making an important point. And part of the reason why it was important was on the substance. And another part of the reason was that it is the case that the current president of the United States' record on crime is troubling to a lot of people. It was troubling during the nomination fight. And, and to this day, there are many people who look back at the crime bill of 1994 and its importance in, in having created the very mass incarceration system that you just were passionately railing against. They say, you know, Joe Biden bear some responsibility for that. And unlike Bill Clinton, who did eventually apologized, I don't think Joe Biden's apologized for the crime bill. So I want to ask you, what does it mean to be now? I know you like Joe Biden. I know you respect him and I know you're going to be working with him. But what does it mean to have a president from your own party who has that history as your partner in the White House now going forward, given your aspirations for how to change the criminal justice system? Well, I, I mean, I'll say very bluntly, I'm thrilled by the Biden administration. And I talked to them all the time, multiple vectors of, of conversations I have with this inner circle about how determined they are to make change on this issue. And so that for me, at the end of the day, this is not personal. Of course. Uh, I think I'm the only senator that lives in a low income black and brown community where the folks who are, are railing or, or wrestling or entangled with this broken system want results. And I know the Biden administration is committed to doing a lot of uh, the reforms, and I should say Biden-Harris administration, you know, Kamala, I'm sorry, the vice president has been extraordinarily uh, a leader in the Senate on these issues. So let me just say this. I went from introducing the Marijuana Justice Act, I can't remember how many years and Congresses ago, yeah. that I, I remember people snickering at me um, that I would take such a bold stand, probably the most comprehensive bill on marijuana reform ever, and now I have two of the more powerful people in the Senate, the chairman of the Finance Committee, Ron Wyden, and Chuck Schumer partnering with me. Right. They're my two wingmen, I'm, or the, the three amigos, that are leading this bill. And it's not just a legalization bill. I, I try to tell people all the time, do not just seek adult use because that is 
if that was all we did, it would be unjust. You need to talk about expunging records. You need to talk about reinvesting the billions of dollars of tax dollars that come from this in communities that have been disproportionately targeted. You need to talk about business opportunities and making sure they're fair and equitable. Because I know this from just watching that the biggest Wall Street kind of titans and pharmaceutical companies licking their chops to be moving into this business, squeezing out uh, minorities or uh, women who have been hurt by the war on drugs and should have an opportunity to reap some of the benefits. Right, but Corey, I'm just going to press you on it a little bit just because of this, right? I, I, I stipulated at the outset that I know you're obviously thrilled to have Joe Biden in office, et cetera. But the point that you were making in that debate clip was that Joe Biden had just said that he didn't think that marijuana should be legalized just you know, within a, some number of short number of days before that debate. So I guess I ask you whether, forget about the history. Do you feel like you have, not in the administration, I'm talking about in the president right now, do you have a partner who has evolved. We all have seen the president has evolved in a variety of ways. Joe Biden is way more progressive now than he was in the 1990s. He's adopted much more progressive policies on a lot of things. But on this stuff, do you feel like you have a partner who wants to go in the direction you want to go on these points? And and what's the evidence for that, that people should look to and say, yeah, Joe Biden has moved in the same way on criminal justice as he has moved on economics and some other things? So the short answer is yes, I, I have a great partner. And I want to be more specific, though. It really do what most sort of affected me on the campaign trail when it came to Biden, because I accused him on more than one occasion of not being there on criminal justice that were talked about openly about his history. But I, I will tell you the thing that most affected me about Joe Biden on the trail is his sort of personal grace and how even when I took a swing at him, he would want to engage me. All, I mean, I can't tell you uh, in, in commercial breaks during debates, conversations we had that these cattle calls as you, you know them where there's where you're waiting with a small group of the candidates to speak and so this is where we got to in private conversation before he was president of the united states on marijuana which was he believes in decriminalization and as i said to him the first time we talked about it was well my bill is no different i think states should be allowed to do what they want i think it should be legalized but what we need to do at the federal level is delist marijuana. And as soon as you decriminalize marijuana, you open up states that right now are not able to do a lot of things um, to, to give way for what I want to achieve. So his policy position on marijuana, he may say, I'm not for legalization, I'm for decriminalization. As a federal official, that's where I'm trying to get to allow the states to get there. That was our first sort of Detente. I wouldn't call it detente. That was our first point of agreement about what the federal policy should be. So I have a partner there. But you went further. You said, hey, Corey, you know, President Biden was a part of a generation of leaders. He is a generation in the Senate ahead of me that in the 1994 crime bill of which uh, Biden helped to lead, which was voted on by African-American members of Congress. What about that? What about that history? Yep. And so I am a big believer, and I go further than a lot of people go, because most people just want to talk about nonviolent offenders. I'm a big believer in redemption. I'm a big believer that all of us need pathways not to be defined by the worst things that we've done. I, I think we as a society will close off so many doors to mutual success and a beloved community if we get stuck in judging people for past mistakes. And so 
for all that generation. I saw it when I, I in 1994, I was a first year law student. And I remember the destruction I knew was being unleashed on low income, particularly black and brown communities. We are at a point now where so many people know better, where the evidence, decades now long evidence of what this mass incarceration system has done, how it has aggravated and fueled, as, as Michelle Alexander, her book by this name, how it's fueled a new Jim Crow in America. And I know Biden is aware of that. And I know he is somebody that's going to use his time in the White House to be an active partner. The evidence I have of that is my regular calls with the White House on criminal justice reform. I'm not calling them. They're often calling me to talk about what we can move forward. Biden would be a leader. And on a lot of racial issues, I have to say, if you had asked me during those primary days, I would not have been where I am now, which is thinking that he actually could go down when it comes to issues of racial justice at a level like a Lyndon Johnson of someone who has advanced the larger cause of racial justice in our country. And that means dealing with environmental injustice, economic injustice, and more that disproportionately affects black and brown communities. Corey, I think this is a good place for us to take a quick break. So when we get back, we will discuss President Biden's executive orders that he came out with last week uh, related to gun violence and how you see those executive orders and his call for action on the part of Congress and whether that is even possible. But like I said, first, let's do some ads and then we will come back with my friend, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker here on Hell and High Water. Gun violence in this country is an epidemic. Let me say it again. Gun violence in this country is an epidemic and it's an international embarrassment. Every day in this country, 316 people are shot every single day. 106 of them die every day. Our flag was still flying at half-staff for the victims of the horrific murder of eight primarily Asian-American people in Georgia. When 10 more lives were taken in a mass murder in Colorado, You probably didn't hear it, but between those two incidents, less than one week apart, there are more than 850 additional shootings. 850 that took the lives of more than 250 people and left 500, 500 injured. This is an epidemic, for God's sake, and it has to stop. We are back with Senator Cory Booker. Here on Hell and High Water, that was President Biden just last week. Uh, He came out with six executive orders that, well, look, anything that a United States president does right now in the face of this epidemic of gun violence and mass shootings that we're facing, anything, anything concrete, anything tangible is only for the good. And, you know, all the things that Joe Biden said he was going to do by executive order last week, I'm for them all. But they are drops in the bucket relative to the size and scale of this problem and the epidemic, as he just described it, an epidemic uh, of mass violence in America. And, you know, Biden, I think, rightly said, there's only so much I can do if we're going to take this on in a serious way with background checks or an assault weapons ban. That is uh, up to Congress. He can't do that on his own. And so he called for those things and, and said, guys, you know, the time for action is now. But really, we are long past time, but yeah, uh, better late than never on this stuff. So, Corey, I want you to talk a little bit about guns, especially in the context of 
race and the kind of racial overlay that, you know, extends over all these issues we've been discussing and that we're going to discuss because, you know, there's no doubt that gun violence afflicts everybody. White people get shot. Hispanic people get shot. Asian people get shot, as we've seen recently. But there's no community that's more uh, negatively affected by gun violence on a daily basis in America than the African-American community. So I'd, I'd love for you to talk about that. And whether or not there is any reason for anybody at this moment, given how fucked up uh, things are on Capitol Hill, whether there's any reason for any of us to feel even the faintest glimmer of hope that this Congress is going to take up this issue in a serious way. Well, let's stop the Pollyannish definitions of hope. Uh, right up the block from me were these projects used to stand that I lived in for eight years. The tenant president whose son was shot and killed in the lobby of the building I lived uh, years before I got there. She kept fighting. She never, we have a street named after her now. And, and she taught me that hope is the active conviction that despair will not have the last word. And I have been broken by the deaths of young black boys that I have known. I mean, it wounds that will never heal. And what the folk in my community have taught me is you have a choice in that pain to surrender to it or let that pain drive a unyielding, invincible purpose. I love my country and I can never give up that we can be who we say we are. We're literally the first parts of our constitution say we are forming our government for words like domestic tranquility, common defense, and yet we live in this distraught world where there have been more people killed by guns in the last 50 years, my lifetime, than all the people that died in our wars, everyone, from the Revolutionary War, through the Civil, through the wars now in the Middle East. And so I cannot just resign myself, like too many people have, to the mass slaughter every day, every week, hundreds and hundreds of Americans dying due to gun violence. And by the way, any other country came close. If this was a, a, a global problem, no, we are unique to this. And other countries have video games. Uh, other countries have depression and mental illness. But only America has this level of carnage and death due to guns. It is a choice we are making. We may not think we're making an active choice, but by our re being resolved to be comfortable with this level of disquieting murder, violence, death, suicide, to me, it is, it is got to drive us to a higher level of activism and engagement. And so our political system is broken. And this is where people who, and I had to come a long way on the filibuster, people kind of get it wrong. I got it wrong. They think that the filibuster is somehow in place to prevent knee-jerk partisanship and having one, one group is in power, they undo the things. No, what I now understand is that the filibuster is actually preventing the things that 70% of more Americans agree on from actually getting done. Right now, there is a spate of things that Americans, Republican and Democrat, from raising the minimum wage all the way to common sense gun safety that just isn't getting done because of this relic of past days held firmly to by white supremacists to try to stop civil rights, that this relic is still around. 
And I know, given that the outsized influence of the NRA and the corporate gun lobby, they're preventing the common will of Americans to protect themselves, to ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, establish justice. We have to, as a society, be able to get things done again that protect us and make us safer. And and that's where I am right now. One of the questions I want to ask you is about the politics of all this, right? Which is, you know, the George Floyd Police Act that we just talked about a little while ago, you know, the Black Lives Matter people have come out and said, you know, they're against it because it doesn't go far enough. And they're against it. They want to have something called the Breathe Act, which has some good things in it too, but the left doesn't want it. The right doesn't want this bill now, uh, you know, for the Republicans are just, you know, against it, which kind of makes the fact that you passed the First Step Act all the more miraculous. But would like for you to talk in that context, you know, the right is you know, wants to portray all this stuff now is defund the police. I swear to God, like if the campaign had been one six months earlier, you would never have gotten the first step back done because it would all have been about defund the police and the mow mowing of that issue. How do you work the politics of this? Because the reality of first step is that the reason it got done was you did have Republican partners. And I'll remind you, there were major civil rights organizations that were against it because it didn't go far enough. Right. When I was walking up the street here, I think it was on Spruce Street. And somebody said to me, my family member got out of prison. And I met people. Thousands of Americans, disproportionately black, were liberated from unjust incarceration. It wasn't enough. It didn't go far enough. But dear God, every step forward, it, it, it makes a difference for those that are involved. So if you have a bill that can save lives to say, I'm not going to do it till I get everything on, off the table, I understand where folks are coming from. Right. But if we can ban chokeholds and unless people are going to die at the hands of police officers, I'm going to push to get as much off the table as we can, given the politics of the moment. And if we want to change the politics of the moment, we, we need to win more elections, get more people engaged and more involved. But there's something deeper. And I told some really amazing activists this who are not going to support the justice policing bill, but I really complimented them because I think a lot of the folks, included uh, people who are in, in the larger Black Lives Matter movement, have done like past activists have, which is to change the realm of what's possible by shifting the moral imagination of this country to deeper empathy, deeper understanding. The horror of the murder of George Floyd did affect our nation when you see from Amazon to New York Times bestseller lists, that the top books being all about racism and white supremacy and healing and empathy. And so Vice President Harris and I said this, when we were getting people to sign on with the George Floyd Act, we got over 40 senators and we both understood that a month or two before George Floyd's murder, we wouldn't have gotten 40 senators on it. So all of us, though, have to make a decision. Am I an activist for justice or am I a bystander to injustice? And if you are an activist for justice, we all have an obligation to try to start inspiring the shift of a greater level, a more courageous empathy in this country to a revival of an ideals of, of civic grace towards making us love each other more. Because this system as it is, is such a violation of our professed values. And you are either participating in it or you are trying to change it. And so, yeah, right now, some of the bills I have, the politics are not going to allow the boldness that I want to see done. But we can't surrender to that cynicism. And we need to continue to try to work to expand the realm of possibility. There's a great TED talk by Brian Stevenson. You may have seen it at some point. You know, he's obviously a hero to a lot of people, a famous 
African-American who has been a campaigner for criminal justice reform and particularly for trying to fix death row for a long time. And he tells a story about meeting Rosa Parks when he's a young lawyer. And she asked him what, what his projects are about. And he goes and he lists all the projects that he's working on. You know, we're trying to end life without parole sentences for children. We're trying to do something about the death penalty. We're trying to reduce the prison population. We're trying to end mass incarceration. And she says to him, man, you are going to be tired, tired, tired. Those are some you know big fights, right? And I think about this in your context, Corey. I think of you in the same way because you've been on the front lines of this particular fight for a long time. And I've, I know how much your mayoralty, your time in Newark, is, is so core to this for you, right? Being a mayor, I think only a mayor in some ways can be as invested in this issue as you are. But I have never asked you about whether there's some, like in your biography, there's something that goes back further. Did you have experiences as a kid or in your family with the criminal justice system that sparked your interest or your curiosity or your passion for these issues even before you were mayor? Well, I mean, the two things, the incongruency of my life because of the activism of whites and blacks, our family was the first black family to move into a small town called Harrington Park. Literally on the day where my father and a volunteer lawyer named Marty Friedman tried to get the contracts, they were attacked by the real estate agent. So, but then I grew up in this place that my father used to just try to, who grew up in the South, segregated South, he's just like, son, don't walk around my, this, my home, this home, like you had a triple, you were born on third base. And my witness to the criminal justice system was watching a lot of my friends break drug laws do crimes. You know, I, I, I always tell a story about senior cut day and some of my friends who just, you know, liquor store was closed and kicked open the back door, stole some cases of beer and some other stuff, got caught, but they had a very different experience with the criminal justice system. Yeah. Parents were called and, but then you shift in my twenties moving to Newark. Yeah. And it was such a jarring reality. Or even when I started working in urban communities as a teenager at, at 18, 19 at Stanford, a jarring reality how profoundly different we have a criminal justice system that is, it seems, and it's easy to believe if you are an African-American uh, in a community like mine, that this system was designed as an inheritor to Jim Crow and before that, the post-Reconstruction period before that, slavery. This system was designed to take away the liberty, the financial freedom of certain groups so that's one. Number two is my experience as a black man in America. And I think the reason why something in George Floyd um, was hard for me to get around, and, I, and I, I'm not being overly emotive, my friends, male friends of mine and I had wept a bit and had very come to Jesus moments because I remember at Stanford, 1992, about 30 years ago, writing a column for my paper that, that Stanford recently asked to reprint because it was entitled, Why Have I Lost Control? And I talked about being present in my class, Rhodes Scholar, and yet my hands are shaking when I write because of the not guilty, not guilty, not guilty verdict of the police officers who so savagely beat Rodney King, who happened to be my size, 6'3", 230. And I recounted incident after incident. I'm a guy that from seventh, eighth grade, when I got over six feet tall, I had the terrible tradition in America of older black men in my life and women counseling me that I couldn't do the things that some of my friends could do. 
that people would see me as a threat. Yeah. And I had to protect myself. And so when I started getting followed in in department stores, stopped, accused of stealing things, stopped in my car, this all built up to that moment in 1992 where I felt such uncontrollable emotion. And we marched. And I remember feeling this defiant, almost bravado during those protests that we were going to end this, that we were going to take back the ideals of our country, make them real for everyone, that we were going to somehow escape the history of our nation and establish a multiracial, multicultural democracy. And then think about this. 30 years later, I, and I get emotional when I say this, I am teaching black boys now the same survival skills that my older adult men and women in my life had to teach. I did not break the cycle of having to tell a young black boy to, to protect themselves because his country, the systems will still not treat them with the same grace and love and patience and latitude that I saw my friends in Harrington Park, Pan area, get from the police. That literally their lives could depend upon where they place their hands, how they comport themselves, if they run or not. And, and so that's what gets me, uh, those two things get me motivated from living on both sides of America's uh, still color line and seeing the, the, the criminal justice system and how unfair it is, and then experiencing for myself as a very privileged American. And, and so you, I heard you say, tired, 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 I want to end on a high note. I am inspired, inspired, inspired. Because I know when I walk onto the Senate floor, I, it has not been lost on me one week in DC that as the fourth popularly elected black person ever to the United States Senate. Before me, it was Obama. Before him, Carol Mosley Braun. And then the first popularly elected African-American was Edmund Brooke. That every time I walk on that floor, I am, I am defiantly flying in the face of so much of the history that happened on that Senate floor. That I am there because of people fatigued and wounded and hurt, kept fighting, kept pushing, showed that invincible determination that one day, and, and on the day I was sworn in by Joe Biden, what I had done right before I went to see him, this is why I'm inspired. My mom took me to go see John Lewis and talk about a guy who was, I don't think I've ever met somebody in my life with more perfect integrity to what he believes, what he says, and what he does. And he would not let my mom and I even serve ourselves. And he couldn't stop telling me what it meant for him who fought for voting rights and civil rights to see me about to be sworn in. And my mom, as, I, as we were, I don't think any United States senators ever had this experience. So <laughs> as you're walking across the Capitol, have your mom lecture you the entire way. My mom's like, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what to ha- had to happen to get you here. Don't forget that the title doesn't make the man. The man has to make the title. And and don't forget. Don't forget you are your ancestors' wildest dreams. And your prayer for yourself has got to be that a generation or two after you, that they will be living the wildest dreams that you had for justice and love in America. 
I'm sorry, you got me emotional here. I'm really grateful that you uh, had some time to spend with us. At some point, this pandemic will be over and I'll get to see you like in person again. And that'd be a- uh... But you don't have to go through Clapper anymore. You got my new cell, I hope. Yeah, I got your new cell. When he gave me the number, he said, you know, he loves to get called at three o'clock in the morning. That's what he said. Clapper <laughs> said he likes the 3 a.m. wake up call. I said, I would check with Rosario first before I place that call. Yeah, I was about to say, sure. she's fierce. Yeah, I, uh, so- don't, don't I know. How's she doing? You guys doing good? Uh, we're doing great and her career is- Great to see an uh, incredible actor in their 40s, female actor in their 40s. She's crushing it. That her career blossoming. I mean, she's crazy. crushing. And I saw her at the end of the last election thing. She was in the the live performance of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I was like, I, I cannot, cannot believe that she was doing that. I, you know, I'm such a huge fan of hers, as you know. So tell her I said hello, by the way. And she's a beast out there. And I mean that in only the best possible way. She is. And it makes me happy she's in the Star Wars universe now. So yes, well, there's, that's a bigger deal than the Rocky Horror thing that I mentioned, but yes. better, better for your, uh, for your next piece of real estate that you guys buy together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Corey Booker, thank you for being on Hell and High Water and uh, we'll catch you later, brother. Thank you, man. Thanks so much. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to my pal, Senator Cory Booker, for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us and rate us and review us on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer, and Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 